0: Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, We're going to be speaking to Barb Howard, author of Happy Sands, which is a novella released by the University of Calgary Press this past September. My name is Ann Logan. I post book reviews on uh, my blog, I'veReadThis.com. And I'd like to introduce you to my friend and the featured author tonight, Barb Howard. Barb has been publishing short stories, essays, and books since 1993. She is a former lawyer who has been president of the Writers Guild at Alberta, the Writer-in-Residence for the Calgary Public Library, and editor of Freefall Magazine. She's also taught creative writing at numerous universities, conferences, and schools. Barb's short story collection, Western Taxidermy, won the Canadian Authors Association 2012 Exporting Alberta Award, and was a finalist at the International 2013 High Plains Book Awards. Her work has been shortlisted four times for Alberta Literary Awards, including twice in 2012, and she won the 2009 Howard O'Hagan Award for Short Story. Barb's fiction and nonfiction has been published in magazines, journals, and anthologies across Canada, including Grain, The New Quarterly, The Dalhousie Review, Room, Alberta Views, and Canadian Lawyer. This latest release of hers, which I have right in front of me here, Happy Sends, um, was listed on the CBC Book's 65 Works of Fiction to Watch for this fall, so it's already making a splash. Barb is a writing mentor and board chair for the Shoe Project, a literacy and performance workshop for immigrant women, and on the board of directors of Calgary Arts Development. Many of you may already be aware of this, but Barb um, is also a very accomplished outdoors woman. She can often be found in the mountains going on hiking, biking, and skiing adventures. She's also a mother to two sons, which is important to note once you read this book because in a lot of ways this book is about motherhood and being the matriarch of a family. Before we dive into the interview, uh, and as we gather in this virtual space, we recognize that we are connected with one another through the winds that blow air into our lungs and through the waters that move deep into the earth and up into the sky. We acknowledge that the ground beneath our feet is historically the home of indigenous peoples, many of whom have been forced to leave for other lands. We share now the names of the peoples who are the first to live, celebrate, lament, and sing upon the land where we now sit. We recognize that the place we now know as Calgary has a deep history. In the spirit of respect and truth, we honor and acknowledge the traditional territories and oral practices of the people of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Nakoda people of the Stony Nations, the Beaver people of the Sutina Nation, the Metis Nation of Alberta Region Three, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty Seven Territory of Southern Alberta. May we also remember that Indigenous peoples are not a people of the past, but are here with us now. Did you want to add anything Barb to that?
1: Well, I do, but I, I want to say thanks and welcome Anne, <laughs> And thanks for doing that research on me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I did want to mention about uh, a land acknowledgement. I mean, a land acknowledgement is an act of reconciliation. And um, on, on that note, we're, we're taping this on September 29th, uh, which is the day before uh, our national day, our first national day uh, for truth and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And it's also orange shirt day tomorrow, related, of course. And so, cause it's a writer thing, I wanna give a specific nod, nod's not enough, I guess, a bow to another author, uh, Phyllis Webstead, who had her new orange shirt, uh, stripped off her on her first day of residential school and never got it back. And so many years later, she started Orange Shirt Day in 2013. And uh, the orange shirt is uh, obviously a metaphor for so many things that have been uh, take, that were taken away and are still being taken away from uh, Indigenous people. So uh, as, a, as a writer, I like to think that metaphors move mountains and uh, I hope this orange shirt one can help us move further and faster along the path to reconciliation.
0: Yeah, thank you for that, Barb. That was really nice. Um, I believe, I I think this recording is going to be posted in October, but um uh, you know, as you mentioned, tomorrow is uh, a, the first Truth and Reconciliation Day for us here in Canada, and I've got a big stack of books that I plan on reading with my kids, and um, I have a specific uh, book by an Indigenous author that I'm going to feature tomorrow on my social media, so I'm really excited to dive into some books. So, I'm not a writer, but I'm a reader, so I'm going to be celebrating in my own special way, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and, and every every day should be, uh, to make it happen, every day should be a oh, Reconciliation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, I had the pleasure of reading Happy Sands just last week, Barb, um, but I thought it might be helpful if you could start us off with just giving, you know, a quick summary of the book, just talking a little bit about what it's about, um, for those who haven't had the pleasure of reading it yet.
1: So, is that going to be the hardest question? (laughs)
0: it really hard that's
1: why I warned you I was gonna ask yeah I know I know I know and actually I I had to write it out even though I wrote the book Uh, I I am um, terrible at the elevator pitch so this is maybe longer than that but um, the book is intended to be fun Uh, just say that for openers it's sort of like a mini vacation hopefully on its own it's a vacation from real world problems Um, most of the things that are going on on the planet are not mentioned in here um, it's set during a seven-day period at a small group of cabins in the Okanagan, uh, the main character is Ginny Johnson, uh, and the story is told from her first-person point of view. She's 42 years old, a massage therapist, and uh, while she wouldn't describe herself like this, she's also a drinker. Um, in the story, she's on this one-week vacation with her family, which consists of her husband, Martin, her 16-year-old son, Alistair, and her eight-year-old daughter, Ruby. So, Ginny's one of these people who is always looking for the perfect vacation and always recalling past vacations as you know, very nostalgic as, as, as being perfect, even though they weren't, you know, what is perfect. Um And so uh, nothing's ever quite right for her and she's never quite happy, Uh, especially uh, when some pranks start happening at Happy Sands. And then especially when she is the suspected prankster. (laughs) and uh, Especially when this um, character who's competing in the Meta-Man competition, Dwayne Champion appears and uh, at least from Ginny's perspective, uh, makes her family seem even more imperfect.
0: Is that, is that, <laughs> that was a very good summary of your book. Um, and and I really wanna reiterate that this book is like laugh out loud funny. <laughs> and, you know, I mentioned in the introduction that it's, it's important to note that you're a mother yourself and I am also a mother. And uh, that's something that I really connected with in the book. I think you know in the first few pages, Ginny refers to herself as an unpaid holiday coordinator, <laughs> which I laugh so hard at because I think uh, a lot of mothers have found ourselves in that position. You know, unpaid holiday coordinator, unpaid um, seamstress, unpaid chauffeur. You know, we're all these we're all these things. Um, but in your acknowledgments, you mention you you thank the fact. That you you mentioned the fact that your family is not this family, um, which is I think important to note because there's obviously Ginny faces a lot of challenges. So I was hoping you could talk about what you did take from your own experiences in motherhood and what you had to completely make up. Like how 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 closely does Ginny resemble you as a mother?
1: Oh well. That- it's interesting that you read the acknowledgements too. I'm glad. I'm glad you noted that it's not my family. It's a, yeah. one of the tricks of writing a first person book from a, a mother's point of view is is hoping you're not identified as that. But for sure, we were one of those families that trotted out to uh, the Okanagan um, every summer, and I, you know, always was thinking. More, and more I think about it now too is. When did this vacation thing start? <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's obviously you know a, 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 I would say mostly a white privileged thing to begin with. And and and, and is it a vacation? <laughs> it, it's a tricky thing to say during uh, when the pandemic's still on and people lots of people still aren't vacationing. But um, yeah, so from my own. Um, uh, experience is the setting for sure, we have stayed okay. at a place like that and it's one of the reasons uh, I've been I've been working on this setting. It just seems like it's really nice with a contained group of cabin and a contained group of characters. It seems ideal for writing about um, but it turned out to be obviously way harder than I thought. Um, in terms of family, uh, yeah, yeah, we would go out as a, a family of four and sometimes have extra kids along some things like that and um I I don't think my experience is unique at all though I mean in the in this book I play with a lot of beach tropes it's been one of the fun things for it I mean it's never fun in the execution but it's always fun in the concept (laughs) Uh, you know there is the buff beach guy is a trope um the sporty family is a trope and the and the mom doing all the stuff that is, you see that on beaches, I see it at Sandy Beach in Calgary, the mom <laughs> laying out the food, packing up the food. Yeah. Not all like that. Yeah. And um, in balance.
0: Yeah. And like something actually kind of occurred to me in the shower actually, when I was thinking about this book is that, you know, in some ways Ginny is, you know, this typical mom who does, who does everything, but, um, in some ways she, she kind of bucks against this trend because it almost sort of seems like her husband Martin does some of the emotional labor that is typically associated with the mom. And Martin, even though he, um, so just a little, maybe you could talk a little bit about Martin and kind of how you developed him as a character. Cause there's a lot going on with Martin like underneath the surface. Yeah, so
1: I mentioned Ginny first because she's telling the story and she's, she's not the true unreliable narrator. She's giving the truth about actions and things in the the book, Um, but she's judgmental. Uh, She's observational and she's always diagnosing people and uh, she's not always right. (laughs) Um, So um, she immediately, right off the bat, um, diagnoses Martin is having depression. And um, since it's not fresh to me, I don't know how a reader would take that initially, but um, um, hopefully that that plays out in the way that I wanted through the rest of the the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And Martin, the character, I developed him. Uh, I was on a project with two other people and I met with one of the people and they were complaining about the other person and they said, they're depressed. (laughs) And I was like, what? (laughs) You can't just throw that word around. And then I was meeting with the other one on the other side of the project and they said that same thing about the other person. And I thought, you can't do that. It's uh, You don't know anything about it (laughs) or them. It's the oddest thing. So in a way, I wanted to draw attention to how that word is being used so casually.
0: Yeah, and, and overused, clearly. Oh,
1: terrible, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so for Martin, yeah, I, you good? I'm glad <laughs> since I haven't had much feedback on the book yet, but I'm glad you know a lot more's going on there than Jeannie is seeing. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of uh, him actually doing more, uh, not doing more than Jeannie proceeds of the family um, emotional work and housework, uh, that would be true in my family as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure if you spoke to my husband, he would say the same thing. Oh, yeah, you you know, you don't notice half the stuff that I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it's funny. So you you had mentioned that Ginny's judgmental, and that's definitely a word that I've included in a lot of my notes about her as well. She is very judgmental. But when we were talking about this book earlier, you had also brought up a really good observation about her is that she touches all the other characters because she's a masseuse. So perhaps it's because she's touching everyone. She feels like she can. She's in a position of authority to give these diagnoses, even when they're you know not correct half the time. Um, so that that's one thing that I actually really loved about the book was learning about what it's like to be a masseuse um, and her all of her observations. I, I wrote something here. One of my, what, one of my favorite parts is when she talks about farting. Um, on page twenty-six, how she has to hold in her farts just as much as her clients do, um, <laughs> which I thought you must have—you must have talked to a masseuse to um, have you know written all these different parts about. So, what, what what kind of research did you do for this?
1: Yeah, that that was um, uh, I, I heard that straight from some massage therapist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I would just ask ask ones that I know. Uh, and I have had massages and so hey, that's a good thing to call research, um, but I specifically asked uh, one who I did not know to read the book. She's in the acknowledgments, who who I uh, didn't know otherwise she was just a referral from someone else to read through and said, so I'm, I'm worried about somehow misrepresenting um, the profession.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, particularly for the kind of person that, that Eugenia is although in in uh, my creation of her I, I I like to think she's actually quite a good massage therapist
0: mm-hmm. yeah she definitely mm-hmm. came across that way it made me want to have a massage just reading about her massages. <laughs> okay. yeah
1: yeah so and I did find it was one of the original impetus in the story is oh I got this person who gets to touch everybody not in an icky way (laughs) but that it was really hard to utilize it's really hard to describe different skin and different uh but bodies i mean a massage therapist would be more uh clinical about it uh, and i try to make her more clinical about it but yeah it's it's a it, it was a bigger task than i expected
0: yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, did, did you want to read uh, some from apart from the book now?
1: Yeah, so I, I thought I'd just start right from the beginning. I have a couple picked out, but this would be the, the longest one that I could, that i toast If toast if we get to the other ones, in case you're wondering like, when's she gonna stop? <laughs> um, so uh, the book, like I said, is set out in seven days and each chapter is a day and the, this is day one. Call me Jenny. My real name is Jeanette, but to me that sounds like a too small bottle of booze, the kind you used to get on airplanes. I'm a massage therapist. My forearms are tanks, not tankettes. If I use the right technique, I don't have to apply much pressure, but even light pressure day after day, body after body makes for a hardy forearm. I'm rounding the corner to 20 years in this profession. I'm good at it. And I've made a lot of people feel better. I even do massages during my annual summer vacation at Happy Sands, for the money, but also because I like helping people. Well, most people. It's not only my vacation at Happy Sands, it's also a holiday for my family. And dare I say, it's even more of a holiday for them than for me. I mean, I do all the organizing and planning before we go, and also most of the work when we are there. But families need holidays. They create the nostalgic glue that holds us together for the rest of the year. And at least if you believe the photos and advertisements, there is no better place to manufacture this glue than on the deck of a cute 1960 style prefab cabin overlooking a white sandy beach under a perpetually sunny sky. So here we are en route to Happy Sands, driving from Calgary to the Okanagan, from Cowtown to Peachtown, from gridded gray streets to curvy lakeshore drives, My husband, Martin, is beside me in the car. Right now, he's sleeping. He sleeps a lot, especially lately. In my usually right opinion, he's depressed. To be fair, he still manages to get our family's laundry done every week. Better than that, he does my work laundry too. That's a lot of sheets. He even does our laundry at Happy Sands, which is a hassle because there are no machines on site, so he has to drive to a laundromat to do it. But laundry is an exercise. He'd feel better if he got more exercise and if he got laid off from his downtown IT job. Martin tells everyone his dream is a Calgary-style layoff package, even though he knows those packages rarely happen anymore. Of course, I haven't told Martin that he's depressed, at least not directly. And if I were going to say something to him, it wouldn't be with our kids in the back seat. It might be during a beach walk. Maybe after a rain, so there's a gorgeous rainbow we are walking towards. And I could say something like, Marty, honey, could you just suck it up like everyone else? I glance in the rearview mirror. 16 year old Alistair is in the seat behind Martin, eight year old Ruby is behind me. My portable massage table is folded and leaning up against the seat between them, a blockheaded third child. It's close to lunchtime, so I turn into the Tim Hortons drive-through in Sycamus. Martin leans towards me to read the drive-through menu. His hair smells musty, like an old pillow, because he spends so much time with his head on a pillow, maybe. I'll just have a coffee, he says. Have something to eat, I say. You haven't eaten anything today. What I really want to say is that if he ate something, maybe he'd have enough energy to exercise or if that's too much, maybe just enough energy to stay awake for the rest of the drive. I'll finish whatever Ruby orders, he says. Oh, no, you won't, Ruby says from the back seat. I'm eating all of mine. Ruby is notorious for ordering more than she can eat. She's competitive. Ordering a big meal and eating it all would be a win to her way of thinking. Alistair says, dad just wants a coffee. Why can't you just let him have a coffee? He can have a coffee, I say. Food was just a suggestion. I'll have a large box of Timbits, Alistair says. He squirms around a bit and adds, this massage table is too big for the back seat. I'd like to know where he thinks the massage table should go. It's too big for the trunk, and it's too expensive to be strapped on top of the car and exposed to the elements. And also, I want to point out that Tim Hortons offers healthier options than a box of Timbits. But I let it go. Hey, I could eat a few Timbits myself. From the pickup window, I hand Ruby your sandwich and juice. I place Martin's coffee in his outstretched hands and hope there's enough caffeine to fix his slump for the rest of the drive. Isn't it the job of the person riding shotgun to keep the driver awake with thought-provoking conversation sprinkled with flattering anecdotes from their mutual past? Not going to happen here. I hand Alistair his private box of 40 Timbits. All in all, not the best lunch scenario, but not terrible. No need to start the summer holiday off with confrontations. After Tim Hortons near Vernon, Martin puts his hand on his stomach and winces dramatically. Oh, here we go, I think. He's going to complain about a stomach ache like he always does around this point of the drive. I don't bother stating the obvious, that maybe he's had too much coffee and not enough food. Besides, Martin would reply that his stomach ache is because I'm driving too fast. He always says that. Sore stomach with some water help, I ask. As the unpaid holiday coordinator, I have supplied everyone with a bottle of water for the drive. Could you slow down a bit, he says, then winces for emphasis. Alistair announces that he also has a stomachache and that it is definitely due to my speeding. I don't say anything. It's not like either of them can see the speedometer. I'm pretty sure Alistair's stomachache is from Scarfing Back 40 Timbits. And then Ruby pipes up that she doesn't have a stomachache and that she has been in lots of cars going way faster than this. She claims all her friends' moms drive faster than me. I doubt it. Although I'm impressed that Ruby doesn't have a although I am impressed that Ruby doesn't have a stomachache. She did eat the whole sandwich and she did it while reading a book in a moving car. And I'll just hop forward to their arrival. Several hours later, when we turn off the highway and follow the gravel road into Happy Sands, Martin rolls down his window, lets in the hot, dry Okanagan air, plus a billow of dust. I look in the rearview mirror and see Alistair's eyes open, even though his head doesn't move. I hear Ruby close her book, lean forward to look out the front window. When we get to the Happy Sands entrance, she asks if she can be the first in our family to check out the beach and see if anything has changed from last year and find out if anyone has spotted the big old fish that the kids call Moby Trout. I stop the car and she is out in a second running in her cutoffs and t-shirt. There's a red crease on the back of her thighs from the car upholstery and one of her sneakers is undone. In a surprise burst of energy, Martin yells out the window, do up your shoe. I will, she yells back, still running, shoelace flapping. So this is our family entrance to Happy Sounds for all to see and hear. Alistair leaning into the headrest like a passed out drunk, Martin and Ruby yelling. Why not just get a bullhorn and shout, "Hello everyone, the Calgary Hillbillies have arrived."
0: I love that. That that actually really set up like the, the it gives everyone a really good sense of the tone of the book and like Ginny's the the Ginny's perspective and just her voice in general. Um, I'm sure everyone listening like I don't know if I'm the only one who cringed at the things that Jenny said because I myself have said every single one of those things <laughs> other than I'm not a fast driver but you know like wanting their family to eat healthier, thinking people sleep too much or you know, like yeah I was, I, I'm sure everyone listening cringed at some points because Jenny says the things that some of us some of us say out loud and others you know just, think in their heads,
1: but. Yeah, know. yeah, when, when you ask, you know, what what this is from my experience, you know, I, I have definitely said, uh, you know, particularly bad on the exercise one. Yes,
0: <laughs> but
1: yeah. I, I, th- I like to think that I, I vocalize things more than Ginny, but <laughs> maybe not. And <laughs> for better or for worse, there is a character who who vocalizes too much. So, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you had said, at one point that this novella, Happy Sands, is based on a short story that you included in, was it Western Taxidermy? Mm-hmm. Did you wanna talk about that process a little bit? Because, you know, as a reader, maybe this makes me sound really ignorant, but I always assume a writer writes something and then is done with it. Because you always hear singers say they're sick of their famous songs. And I assumed it was the same thing for writers. Once you write something, you're done with it. But clearly that that isn't what happened here.
1: Uh, yeah, so usually I, I do write a thing and uh, am done. This is very uh, rare the way I did. So I might have a thing written and take a piece out and try sell it as a short story. Uh, oh, and then, then I'm done with it that one. But this one wasn't even before the short story in Western taxidermy. It was a manuscript I was working on. Uh, just uh, you know for the setting, some of the same characters are in it. Some of them have different names um, I, But uh, it was super dark. But one of my sons uh, read this book recently. He said, well, wow, is that ever different? Because it was, it was dark. I had, oh, I had a suicide in it. And then at one point, you know, it was a murder story. I just, I, had to, uh, I, I couldn't um, couldn't get my hands on how, how to do it, right? And I, uh, from that, I had taken out a short story and made it, you know, and it's, not, it's called Porch Jockey Revival. Took a section out of that that I thought was working well to use as a short story. And then uh, I just got back to work on it and thought I'm trying to make, uh, even in the short story, I was I think, just trying to make right something important, or I was trying to make something serious. And um, yeah, that we're trying to write something important is disastrous. That never turns out. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? Let's just um, take take that whole idea away and why not have some fun? It's at the beach. Yeah. And I, yeah, well, uh, it's. At least under under my keyword, it wasn't going to turn into um, this great, super deep, uh, sad thing, and and you know you can still have layers in it if it's fun. Uh, so yeah, it's yeah. quite quite different now.
0: Well, and you had called it um, a literary beach read at one point, and you know I was trying to think what what makes this book a literary beach read versus just like a typical beach read. Um, One of my kind of theories is that not everything is kind of wrapped up in a neat little bow at at the end of this book, whereas other kind of beach reads specifically does tend to just kind of wrap things up, even if it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, So did you set out to write a literary beach read or is that kind of what started to emerge as?
1: Yeah, I mean, I still wanted to do a good job writing. And uh, I guess when I think of a beach read, I think of that book that you see someone holding at the airport or at the beach or somewhere and you say, what are you reading? And they kind of put their hand over it and then they say, oh, just the, oh, just a beach read or, oh, just the, yeah, yeah. they kind of, they're like, and I thought, well, why does that have to be like that? And also, I mean, maybe, maybe the book they're reading isn't like that, but I, I think the idea there is it would be one dimensional and, um with perhaps some of the some of the stereotypes that, that I, I use myself because they're a bit of an expectation in, in the form but also um that uh there is say, for instance the first line um call me Ginny is a play on call me Ishmael and Moby Dick and there's this fish that they're looking for and um Moby trout and playing with some um, inter or, or some cross references to other or the things that doesn't matter if anybody gets them or anything they were. Um, they they came naturally I, that's not a heavy handed one at, at all. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think. <laughs> but, <laughs>
0: I didn't pick up on that, but when you start talking about things like that, it's like, oh, like it, it kind of invites a reread once you, when once you reach the end, because the, I think that's to me that's what sort of makes a book literary as well, right? It's a lot of the kind of these mass, mass, mass market paperbacks you kind of read once and you're like, okay, yeah, you know, and you don't really need to, you, you enjoyed it, but you don't necessarily need to go back and reread it. But when something's literary, something's a little meteor. Um, there's there's layers as you said. There's things to return back to and kind of read a second time and kind of sit with. Um,
1: yeah, and they, the co- this is not literary thing, but the, the the cover is a play on um, the cover of The Jaws. <laughs> the cover of Jaws, of Jaws coming up. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, it makes me. Yeah, uh, that's uh, You know, the, the the original paperback sort of thing that was. Maybe I don't know. I don't know how many people would even be that familiar with that book, but. Uh, so, so there's. Uh, I like that. I don't know if that's literary or if that's playful or.
0: Well, I think uh, it's a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and the University of Calgary Press. This is the first time you've published with them.
1: It is, and they were great to work with.
0: Yeah. So, so had you written the novella first and then shopped it around? Because novellas are kind of a, tend to be a harder sell for publishers, are they not? they they're super hard to sell.
1: Yeah, and I I don't know I'm I'm always on a campaign to bring them back. There's so many great novellas, and I've written one other one, and people um, like the length. It's just maybe it's it's too, it's maybe not even a a beach holiday. It's two afternoons at the beach or something to finish it. And uh, yeah, they're really I know they're really hard. Often people package them with short stories. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, and that always seems kind of imbalanced to me to have one lo- big long thing and then six little short guys, unless maybe they're on the same theme. So, yeah, yeah, they are tough. I think it's a matter of cost, like economies of scale, why publishers, um, uh, okay, but I just feel in the world of shortening attention spans, if that's the thing, mm-hmm. you'd think there'd be more novellas out. And this is, uh, this one's about, I think. I, now I'm throwing out numbers and they're probably wrong, but I think it's about 46,000 words. And I think a, a novel is safe over 50 for the, the shortest ones in the categories. So it's not super short on that side, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Did you like the length? You mean like the uh, yeah.
0: Well, and I like, and notoriously afraid of picking up bigger books because I just don't, want my time to be monopolized, right? And I think a lot of readers feel that way, like seeing a big book is sort of daunting. But you're right, there's sort of this strange paradox where novellas and short stories do not sell as well. And so publishers are more hesitant to pick them up. And I'm not sure why that is, because you're right, our attention spans are way shorter than they used to be. Um, but I love the length of this, and I think that's what makes it perfect for you know a, a beach read. Right, because it's not, you don't have to commit weeks and weeks to yeah. something like this.
1: Yeah, and I, I probably, uh, I mean, I have, the novels that I've written, none of them have been long, like I definitely am a, a short story write, writer who occasionally writes a novel, and that's shown in the size. I, I see some of those giant books, and I think that's more than I will ever uh, publish, maybe not make but publish in my life, in, in that some people write in a single book.
0: Yeah, yeah um I, we just got a reminder here that we only have about 10 minutes left so did you want to read something else in happy sands
1: hmm you know i'm gonna skip over reading about Meta Man. i feel like i should read a massage because it's about a massage
0: therapist yeah, yeah i'd love that
1: and maybe you know relax everybody
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> With everything going on in the world i think we all need a nice massage
1: yeah so uh this is from day five and uh, Alistair has a friend at the resort, girlfriend, budding relationship with a girl named Esther, who's sort of a uh, soft goth, fake goth, you know, but she's dressing, dressing goth anyhow, and uh, she, she's in the scene. And this is at nighttime. Alistair and Esther are on the couch watching TV. Alistair is in a long sleeve shirt and jeans. Esther is in her chain pants and a black flannel shirt. The barely clad beach scene is not for them. Hey mom, Alistair says, we played badminton when you were napping. I was not napping, I say. Not sure why I'm carrying on this no nap charade, but I'm in the groove now. We stopped because Esther hurt her shoulder, Alistair says. Esther demonstrates by showing how far she can raise her arm. Not quite to shoulder height. Can you fix it, Alistair asks. Ah, I'm used for something. I have this massage skill. Maybe, I say, I'll have to take a look. I'll open your table, Alistair says, springing off the couch, full of life for Esther. Esther's eyes dart around the room in panic, probably because her mother is claiming my treatment ruined her neck, but her panic might be triggered by more than that. I remember her saying that she doesn't like to be touched by people, although judging from the usual cuddle position on the couch, with Alistair, it seems that Alistair might be an exception to her definition of people. Only if Esther wants, I say. Then add, and Esther, you can lie on the table with all your clothes on. It doesn't have to be a big deal. I'll try it for a minute, she says. A minute treatment isn't going to help, but we'll proceed with baby steps. Esther gets on the table, face up, arms tight to her sides, her body stiff as a tin shoulder. I ask her a few questions. Try to make her feel at ease. I softly touch her arm and her shoulder. Tell her what I'm doing before I do it. It seems she has a mild rotator cuff injury. She agrees to roll onto her front. I work her shoulder, mainly her supraspinitis muscle. Lightly. It's bad enough that her mother is wearing a neck brace. I don't need to risk adding to Esther's inflammation and having her appear tomorrow in an arm sling. Esther's flannel shirt rides up as I work and I notice she's got a dimple piercing on her lower back. Two tiny silver baubles on either side of her lumbar spine. The site looks healthy. I wouldn't be concerned about working in the area. Even though she has a shoulder injury, I'd like to work the whole back to catch the interrelated muscles. For Esther's comfort though, I will keep to her shoulder. I've seen several back piercings on clients. If I see one that is not fully healed or showing signs of infection, I won't do a massage. One of my clients has a nape piercing, two red gemstones on either side of her spine at the back of her neck. It reminds me of a misplaced vampire bite, but that might be the artistic intention. And I've seen one barbell piercing on a client's back, low down, right about where Esther's dimple piercings are. It was easy to work around. Esther must sense I'm looking at her piercing. She reaches around with one arm and tugs her shirt towards her pants. Don't tell my mom, she says. I can't tell anyone. That would be professional misconduct, I say. Not that I tell anyone anyway. Esther releases her grip on her shirt, brings her arm back to the table. I'd like to work longer on Esther, but I better leave it at half an hour. Her shoulder has taken the treatment well. Her breath is relaxed. I give her a light pat on the back and say, all done. You can stay on the table for as long as you like. Esther gives me a thumbs up. Alistair gives me two thumbs up. My work here is done.
0: Nice. Um, I know we're nearing the end here, but I wanted to ask you. Um, you talked about about this book sort of being about happiness, and you know, at one point, I think it's Alistair says, you know, no one's really happy. We just we just pretend we're happy or something like that. Um, and I, a lot of the characters in this book aren't necessarily happy all the time. They're, there's fleeting moments of, of happiness in this book. Um, so it is writing about characters who aren't happy all the time a, a little bit easier as, as a writer? Do you think that's more interesting for readers? Is that kind of a, 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 a more interesting thing to write about for you?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I, and I don't know anybody who is happy all the time. So I think it's realistic. Um, it's like it's really hard to write about really good people, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice people. They're the hardest of all to write about. But yeah, I, I I think if the you know not a world problem, but if there was a a universal thing about the story, it's 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 a, a happiness thread. I mean, I don't know that it's a good thing to pursue in the way that um, Ginny seems to pursue it. Mm-hmm or expect it's not a good expectation
0: (laughs) yeah yeah um and i i although there are characters who are unhappy in this book i i have to say that as a reader reading this book made me happy because you know of of what we talked about like the humor especially it just it really made me laugh and you know with everything going on in the world today it was really nice speaking personally to just take a little break from all that and you know, I think you'd said someone asked you if this was historical fiction, but um, <laughs> there's just, there, there's no, no outside things, right? It's, it's so internalized. And that's what I really loved mm-hmm. about it. And it's, it, it was a vacation for me as a reader. So, so thank you for writing mm-hmm. that book that I could mm-hmm. enjoy.
1: Thank you for saying that, Anne, I, I, you know, because I don't have a sense of it, but it is a, it is an odd book to be launching in these times. It's, it's like, seems completely irrelevant, but then maybe it's not. Maybe maybe no, everybody no, no, no. wants an a, a escape in some way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's my hope. Yeah. I think we're all looking for an escape and you can definitely find that in Happy Sands. So everyone should run out and buy their copy. And if they can't find it, definitely order it because I know there's some book shortages happening right now in the in the book world. Um, so I, I, guess we'll, we'll wrap up with that. Um, thank you so much, Barb, for this. Yeah, thank Welcome you. It's a beautiful book.
1: And thanks to Writers Guild.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah. We should mention that. Thank you to the Writers Guild of Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> president's completely forgetting, but yeah. No, well, I'm,
1: I'm super happy that
0: they have this series. Yeah, I think it's a great, a wonderful thing.
1: And it's pretty so, key for writers launching books in the pandemic
0: in the pandemic yeah absolutely yeah. and important for readers too right to uh, to get to experience all the new releases so thank you
1: okay thanks sam